Accetto la tua sfida, la mia vita contro la tua, secondo le regole. Prenditi la tua corda, Laredo. Solo 10 dollari a cadaveri. Raduna i cadaveri e poi fa pure i conti col becchino. Bravo, bel colpo. Domani lo scriverò sul giornale, giovanotto. Ma, ma non ricordo il vostro nome. Non ve l'ho detto. È Yoko. Un'esplosione di vitalità. Welcome to episode 70 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and tonight I am once again joined by... John Hudson. And we're here to talk once again about the films of Antonio Margheriti, something that we dearly love doing, but we don't do often enough. Uh, We will take the time this evening to deeply dive into one of his uh, spaghetti westerns. It's a movie about vengeance uh, called... Revenge. No, actually, that, 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 that <laughs> good alternate title, I guess. But <laughs> it's a movie called Vengeance. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, honestly, a fully one-third to one-half of all spaghetti westerns were about vengeance. Mm-hmm. So just naming one vengeance, I guess you kind of... It was made in 68, so I guess if you're trying to get out in front of it as quickly as possible. Well, it kind of cuts out the middleman, you know, like, well, what? I don't know what this one's about. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, we're not fooling around here. It's vengeance, damn it. As soon as you see the, the board outside the theater, you know what you're getting. Well, interestingly enough, apparently this movie didn't get released here in the States until 1972. So... Uh-huh. The rest of the world saw this movie before the United States in general, which I guess isn't that much of a shock. I mean, yeah. by by seventy five, the spaghetti western thing was over and done with. So, or you know, for the most part, there were mm-hmm. still a few that got produced, but <sighs> oh well, they only made a few hundred of them. And <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do love fi- man. Even the worst spaghetti. What? Okay, I'm gonna let me amend that. That's not true. I've discovered yeah. that not to be true. I was going to say... Because there are some really bad ones. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that. the Even the worst Spaghetti Western has something that you can enjoy. But honestly, I found some Spaghetti Westerns that that is not true of. So I can no longer make that rather mm-hmm. asinine statement. That just ain't true. Yeah, it's not true of any genre. Because I've thought the same thing. It's like, well, you know, anything like that is going to be fun. And like, no. No, no it's not. There are it's ways not. to make it not fun, no matter what it is. <laughs> Sometimes creativity can bring out the boredom in anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't matter what. But uh, listen, before we get into talking about vengeance, um, anything interesting been taking your interest away from, uh, I don't know, Antonio Margheriti here lately? Well, actually, just before I watched the film for the podcast, 
I watched the new season of Glow on Netflix, and this is kind of a left turn for probably a lot of the folks who listen to this show, but (laughs) I really want to throw it out there because I think the show is just pretty darn great. It's um, If you remember or even heard about the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, which was like a very cheesy wrestling show with women in the 80s, Um, and I can't recommend that. But <laughs> okay, okay. But this is set in that world very loosely, but it's about the women who come together to put the show on. It's sort of the same way that as Orange is the New Black is about prison, this is about wrestling. It gives you a setting for all these characters to come together and all these women. It's a really fantastic show. I've heard nothing but good things yeah, about it. So It's good. And my wife, Laura, the first season... I was curious about it just because, wow, they're making a show out of this glow. That might be interesting. And like after the second episode, I went to her and said, you have to watch this. And she's like, I don't want to watch a show about wrestling. I'm like, no, no, no. I promise you, you'll enjoy this. And she's like, well, that's not about wrestling at all, is it? No, it's really good. It's funny. It's touching. So if you haven't given it a chance because you think it's about wrestling... It seriously is really, really fun. And well, yeah, I've I've, I've heard someone uh, someone briefly describe Glow as uh, it 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 is to uh, professional wrestling what Breaking Bad is to cancer victims. Yeah, it's involved. But... Yeah, that's probably about right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, well, cool, cool. Yes, it, it, that is on my very long list of uh, television series that I'd like to get oh, around yeah. to. I've got a long list like that too. That one comes up. A little quicker because my wife likes it too, so that makes it easier. Yeah. Because I don't want to just like, you know, quarantine myself to watch something <laughs> away from her. So if, if I know it's something she's going to like, it's easier to find the time to watch it. So. Oh well, I yeah like right like right now, uh, the girlfriend and I are about to start watching Cloak and Dagger, but we haven't started watching it yet. We're just excited that you know there's this left turn Marvel adaptation about. Some really obscure Marvel games. Yeah, that's one I'm curious about. I'll be interested to see what you think of that. Got it stacked up on the DVR. Haven't watched any of it yet. Going to probably start uh, this coming week. I'm going to find... Oh, and um, I've been going through... On my own, I've been going through this the uh, series uh, Counterpart. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Stars series with J.K. Simons. And uh, that is excellent. A sci-fi espionage thriller. Kind of a parallel world situation that is absolutely fascinating because uh, it really concentrates hard on the spycraft, the tradecraft end of things, uh, and it's just the circumstances of having, you know, dealing with two divert two Earths that diverged at a certain point that has caused some serious problems with how the two separate dimensions, I guess you'd put it, kind of view each other. Fascinating, actually. Stephen Ray, uh, Stephen Ray is in it. Um, a number of really, really good character actors that you know some some of which you know, some of which will be oh yeah that that guy that guy mm-hmm. I, remember, I remember that guy, but uh, so that's cool that's worth checking out too. And with Cloak and Dagger, it reminded me. Speaking of Marvel, on the way over here, I heard the news that uh, Steve Ditko passed away, and I think you just saw that just before we sat down. So yeah, it was a little weird. I I I knew he was of course you know no you know Steve Ditko's. Getting up in uh, getting up in years, but he's so far out of the the, the limelight. Mm-hmm. He just you know sits back, sits back and, and takes those takes those checks from Marvel, which you know, hey, good for him. But at the yeah. same time, 
yeah, it, it's it's weird to know that Steve Ditko has passed away. That's 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 a little odd. Yeah, it's sad. He he is my f- legit favorite comic book artist of all time, and of course co-creator and of Spider Man, and the creator of most of the memorable Spider Man villains. And yeah. um, that's my favorite comic book character of all time. And of course, I love the Creeper and countless countless hours of joy I've gotten from his work. So this one's kind of depressing. Yeah, actually, what I've been uh, paying attention to here for the past couple of years has been uh, Ditko's very early horror comics work, mm-hmm. which I've found to be incredibly, uh, incredibly, just fascinating as hell. And as a matter of fact, it it reminds me heavily of his uh, his amazing Doctor Strange stuff in a, in a lot of weird ways because he was able to kind of stretch and bend the way he was uh, the way he was kind of using the panels in in some fascinating ways. You know, horror comics will let you get away with stuff that you might not necessarily might not necessarily want to try at that time in uh, in you know more commercial books because the horror books were going to sell. Period. So as long as you stayed kind of within the lines, and I guess maybe that's a bit of freedom that he took advantage of. So. I think so because you could see like a lot of the cosmic stuff that he really dove deep in with Doctor Strange was popping up in that you know the the early horror stuff, which yeah, is great. Yeah. And the later horror stuff, if if any of you have not read his Warren horror stuff. There's a hardcover that collects all of the work he did for Creepy and Eerie. Yeah. And that stuff is just unbelievably great. Actually, it was reading that uh, that collection, the Warren collection of Steve Ditko's work that led me backwards into his earlier Mm -hmm. horror comics. So yeah, 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 you're right. So... May we all reach his ripe old age of 90 or more. So And be just as curmudgeonly and... (laughs) um, I'll, I'll... Ditko, he's... um, He's a weird one, um, and I've he was for a long time. I, I'm kind of an autograph guy, and of course, a, a Ditko autograph is always one of those elusive things that you just can't get. Yeah, you would think. Uh, the first time I tried to get one, I sent him a um, your standard autograph fan letter along with a self-addressed stamped envelope and um, just an autograph request. Hey, I'm a big fan. Would love to have your autograph. So he sent me the letter back, and he wrote on it. If I sign for one, I have to sign for everybody, and sent that back. Yeah. Rather than just signing his name, which would be the easier way to do it. But um, I guess about two years later, when the Exotic Ones, my band, was working on our CD, I wrote to him and said, you know, this is a long shot, but we love your stuff. Would you be interested in doing an album cover for us? And he wrote me back and said that he wasn't interested because he only works on his own creations, and, yeah. and which is fair enough. But he said, you know, thanks for the uh, the interest. Signed, Steve Ditko. And then he printed his name underneath the signature. So I was like, ah, I got my autograph, you, <laughs> you old bastard. <laughs> but then um, about a year later, I guess it was maybe two years ago, it was just after... It was during the Trump, either the Trump campaign or right after the election, I wrote him a letter for his birthday. And he um, wrote back and thanked me for my for my letter, but he was very troubled by the state of the world and where the country was going. And, yeah. And um, it was really, you know, very heartfelt. So I wrote him again the next year and said, hope this finds you in better state of mind. The last time when we wrote, you were you know, a little upset about things and hope this finds you in a better state of mind. So he wrote back this very sort of scathing letter. One can be concerned without being worried. And 
It's like, wow, sorry. Oh, my God. Okay. So I got to see all sides of Steve Ditko. So it was like, I'm kind of glad I got all of that in there. You know, with, I'm, yeah, yeah, lucky you. You got, you, got the, you got the bitter and the sweet. That's right. So it was, it was the sort of thing. It's like if you're insulted by Don Rickles, like, well, I'll be darned. That makes me feel good. You know? Like Steve Ditko gave me a tongue lashing. So... <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, so, so to speak. But in all seriousness, yeah, he he was a great one, and he was my favorite ever. And it's it's kind of depressing. Agreed, agreed. All right, let's uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back after this, and uh, we'll go ahead and start talking about uh, vengeance. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. Huh, that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Now that I've cleaned the glass, give me some whiskey. You can drink it straight up. Oh, let me see. You have a sheriff around here. Five men held the balance of death. His revenge explodes in a blaze of hellfire. Such is the tagline, or one of the taglines, for Vengeance from 1968. The Antonio Margariti Western that I've seen a few people discuss as gothic. And uh, although I don't, I think that uh, if they're describing this one as gothic, I shudder to think what they will say if they ever see 
his follow-up to this, which was And God Said to Cain, which uh, takes Gothic and kind of ramps it up to a, to 11. Um, did you did you get a, just overall, did you get a Gothic vibe from this except for just one, I mean, I, I can think of one thing, but... Mm-hmm. And not really. And, and in fact, a lot of the reviews I read after I watched it said that, and a lot of them also said the ultra-violent... You know, blood spattered, and it's like, I'm not sure if these people have seen this movie. Well, that's just it. Okay, there are... Now, what we've seen, understandable understandable people, understand people, is that uh, the version that was released uh, more than a decade ago on DVD here in the States, and the version that Code Red has now put out on Blu-ray is the uncut version, which is 99 minutes. Um, over long, and we'll get to talking about that, but nevertheless, what we're seeing is the uncut version of this film, so we're not seeing something... Uh, we're not we're not watching a version that has something cut out of it. So what we're talking about is, um, there are two instances where there's blood on screen. Mm-hmm. There's the famous spurs to the neck that uh, is a very interesting way of of killing a character um, with a very interesting camera angle. I love that. <laughs> we, could, we, could, we could refer to that to that as dick cam or crotch cam. <laughs> 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 because that's definitely the position that camera was in mm-hmm. for that shot to take to, to take place. But the uh, and of course the other scene is where there is one uh, shot where a guy gets shot in uh, kind of the torso and there's blood on his torso. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember much in the way of blood elsewhere was, in the film. Yeah, that was about it. Uh, so I I really was a little baffled at all the reviews and these were contemporary reviews. I mean, yeah, you know, more you know, recent and it was like. It's not, you know, it's like sometimes you read old reviews of Hammer films and they talk about the buckets of blood pouring out of people's heads. And as you watch it through modern eyes, it's not not really. It's like but really nothing, but yeah. in this case, it's like people writing it now and it's like, I, what are you seeing? What you are know? you seeing here? Well, see, I, this, isn't, this isn't the same thing that I'm seeing. I think there's only one thing, and this is very effective. The film has one of the most effective opening scenes for a spaghetti western that I think you're going to run across. I think it's fantastic. Yes. The movie opens uh, with this incredible crane shot. You're, it's it's a god's eye view of this scene where you're out in the out in the the wilderness in this muddy patch of land where this character this guy has ropes tied to each of his limbs and there are men on horseback with the other ends of those ropes and they're trying to get some information out of this guy and essentially every now and then one of them will kind of tug on his arm or his leg whatever it's attached to. With you know trying to trying to cause him some pain to try to get him to talk, and uh, th- this is this is a very effective scene. It's 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 amazingly shot, and it is something that I think that makes people think they're seeing a lot of violence when actually there's nothing on screen because when they finally do uh, you know minor spoiler alert it is in the first couple of minutes of the movie when they do finally actually kill this guy by riding off in separate directions. Uh, they don't show you this. You just hear the sound of a scream. You just hear this guy screaming, and then the credits start. So the movie places an image in your head that just isn't in the film. And quite honestly, they would have never been able to—they wouldn't have been able to put on screen, and they wouldn't have been able to put on screen effectively in 1968. You know, there's no way to have done it that wouldn't have looked ridiculously, you know, just silly. So. If I think that is, since that's the first scene of the movie, I think that kind of sets people up while watching the rest of the movie to be expecting and almost seeing violence that isn't there. 
And so I think, you're right, I keep hearing people refer to it as this incredibly violent spaghetti western, and I'm like, dude, I could show you some incredibly violent spaghetti westerns. This one's not one of them. Not at all. And that that shot, though, is, and again, it's sort of become a a Marguerite trademark of a fantastic opening shot for a film. And it starts in tight and then goes up and up and up, and it's you just really wonder on the budget they had how they got that shot. It was so good. And it's interesting, The um, in the extras, there's an interview with Alfredo Leone, who was one of the producers, and he said that it was his idea to open the movie with that. Originally, that wasn't going to be the opening. I don't believe that. See, I don't know. Yeah, that doesn't make, any, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I, I, I do know that, I mean, let's be honest, Antonio Margariti's gone. <laughs> He's passed away. And, you know, uh, a lot of the people involved, who would have been involved in making the decisions about how the film was going to be edited... They aren't around anymore either. Mm-hmm. So if you you know if that if that's him you know you know sticking his finger in and saying well you know this that that particular choice was made by me, okay 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 maybe that maybe he was part of the conversation. But there are too many other things like that at the beginnings of different Margariti films for me to think that that wasn't something that you know might have been his idea. Especially when this is the rare Antonio Margariti film where he has a, a full screenplay credit. Yep. And I don't think, as I watched it the second time through, it was like, where else would that scene have gone? Yeah, it would have to have been a flashback. Yeah, and what that sets up everything that follows. There's no way, I think that guy just says, you know what, that's the best part of the movie, I'm taking credit for it. (laughs) The only person who can uh, argue with me is dead, so it's me. I, th- I think you're right. Although I have a lot of respect for for uh, Alf- uh, Alfredo Leone because he uh, he produced a lot of some of my favorite Euro trash mm-hmm. from the '70s, especially. I mean, he's responsible for Lisa and the Devil, one of my favorite uh, Mario Bava films, and so. Oh yeah, I'm not going to trash him too much, oh, but no. but I'm thinking that he may be taking credit here. Oh, I think he I, probably gonna, isn't you know, isn't earned. I le- I lean in that direction myself, but uh, you know. Producers are famous for doing that, so... No. (laughs) Yes, they are. I don't want to break this to you. I don't want to make this to you in a way that kind of offsets the the admiration you might have for the the entire film industry, my friend, but yeah. Yeah, they believe there's somebody shady in the film industry. (laughs) Success has many mothers, and failure is an orphan. Always remember that. (laughs) Now I'm going to go home and just... Weep into my pillow. My <laughs> my world has been shattered. <laughs> so terrible. But yeah, you're right. Where else would the scene go? Because it does. It's it's the thing that sets up the entire revenge plot. Mm-hmm. Because then we're introduced to Richard Harris, son Richard Harris. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't stop myself because I, I I want it's okay. Look, yes, the guy's name is Richard Harrison. But it just, it reeks of being a pseudonym because it's so close to Richard Harris and it's such a, such a standard American actor name. But he's a standard American actor. That's, mm-hmm. that's the terrible thing. So for years before I found out that, that Richard Harrison was an, an actual, you know, American actor who came over to Italy and you know, then spent the next 20 some odd years making movies in Europe... I thought that's a pseudonym. There's no way that that's an actual name. Somebody found a really good name and they laid claim to just the proper spelling to fit in between the lines of not being sued by an actor who's more famous who's got a similar name. Uh, so it, it just always weirds me. It just always weirds me out because for a long time um, I would see him in uh, Sword and Sandal movies, Peplum movies, 
And I was, just, I just made the assumption this is a, this, this is a dude. That's not his real name. That's just not his real name. There's no way. <laughs> so it's a bit of a shock to uh, uh, years later run, run across like an interview. With, I think it was a print interview with him and realize, oh, this dude's this dude's from the states. Oh my god, that's his actual name. Well, supposedly, supposedly, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, a handsome man, nevertheless, who always. Seems to have been able to uh, during the sixties and seventies. Always seems to have been able to to uh, Shanghai those roles that uh, the producers and directors probably actually wanted Clint Eastwood for. <laughs> well, yeah, no kidding. And, and as soon as he walked on the screen or rode onto the screen in this one, I thought, you know, if Clint Eastwood had starred in Planet of the Apes, this guy would have been in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> He's he's the George he's the James Franciscus to, to, to Charlton Heston. That's right. Oh my God! Zero would have thought they were the same guy. Taylor, because uh, all humans look alike, especially those two. Especially, especially the yeah, that's true. It's true. <laughs> if there was ever a reason you were cast to look like someone else, there's a pair of examples right mm-hmm. there. But. Yes, so what we have here is, um, uh, it is a standard revenge story. I mean, there's really no way around it. And and what the film is, is a series of uh, our main character, who goes by different names depending on how you want to uh, listen to and or uh, read about this film, because the character's name is either uh, Rocco Barrett or Jocko Barrett. And at times, even in the English cut... <laughs> Even in the English version that I've watched several times in my life now, uh, I can hear it both ways sometimes on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. So uh, regardless, I think it's it's supposed to be Rocco, but, but then they call him Rocco a lot. Rocco, exactly, and that that that's one of the trickier things. And then there's the question of it took me some real digging to find out. Okay, the the redheaded woman, the 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 redheaded actress who's got a pretty good part in the film, it took me backing up and, and tracking through the soundtrack to figure out what that character's name was. Of course, there were only two female characters, so there were really only two choices to, to, to pull from as far as like having a listing of the actresses, the actors and actresses. But it was like, it's like, could you could you people have just actually like introduced the character a little, <laughs> a little clearer? Because <laughs> her name is Jane. Okay, mm. good. And then the other is, uh, I think, Rosita. Yeah, now they give her name fairly yeah. clearly. They actually, I think, during the flashback sequence. But yeah, I mean, but just, you know, honestly, they, they'd have done just as well to never never have the name Jane said on screen and just call her, you know, the hot redhead with mm-hmm. large breasts. Well, yeah, the, the, same. the large, large-breasted redhead. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much that's where we are. Yeah. Actually, she does a pretty good job. We'll we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later. That uh, that jail cell scene. That's pretty uh, actually a pretty good little scene. But so what we have is a series of uh, escapades where our main character is pursuing uh, what little information he has about the people who killed the guy at the beginning of the movie. Uh, the guy, of course, he's wanting to revenge this man because this was a, a dear friend of his. And through the course of the story, we learn why he wants to take revenge. Revenge or vengeance? vengeance. <laughs> oh, God. I was confused for a second. Uh, revenge or revenge? <laughs> just, mis- just mispronounced the word as much as possible. Revenge. 
<laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Callbacks to films that people know don't know even exist. I'm assuming, but so we have one, you know, little mini adventure after another as he's he picks off the first two. And of course, I love the fact that the first <laughs> the first oh, victim yeah. to fall under his to fall under his gun is uh, old Alan Collins. Alan Collins himself, Here also known as Luciano Pigozzi. Uh, the the Italian Peter Lorre, who is turn, who honestly may be the actor who's in more Antonio Margheriti films than any other actor. Although I'd have to do a serious count because there are contenders, but they, there can't be many in his range. And once again, he is, I think, the first close up you see in the film yeah. is him. And I was like, all right, he's going to get a great part this time. And then as soon as you see him as the first guy riding into his shack, it's like. Oh, he's going to bite it in the first five minutes. <laughs> Our hero is going to kill this bastard immediately. Ah, this sucks. <laughs> but it is a good sequence. It is. He's great. As yeah. always, he's as much as I you know, joke around about him, I love him. He's always he's great. good. He's so good. And I did love it in, that, in, the, in the interview on the Code Red, Code Red Blu-ray with uh, with Harrison, he 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 actually says uh, he he talks about quote unquote he said he calls him Alan Collins mm-hmm. and he says I always I always thought he looked like uh, Peter, Peter Lorre and it's like <laughs> yeah you and everybody else on the planet man <laughs> okay so Alan Collins a, aka Luciano Pigozzi uh, he his character's name was Domingo and he's the, he's the first one who gets settled up with mm-hmm. by uh, our our uh, our vicious uh, vengeful hero. And uh, of course, he gets the information out of him. He he wants to know where the other who the other people were involved, and, and the name he gets out of him is Yuma. So he uh, knows where Yuma he knows where Yuma is. It's this town he travels to. So, and and before we get there, one thing I thought that first scene set up a lot. Um, of course, we find out that um, Roko Rocco Ruku has <laughs> Ruku. Yeah. He knows there were five men responsible for the killing because right. he's got the five ropes. Five ropes are tied, tied to, to the body, yeah. And as Domingo, he gives him two names. Uh, it seemed like maybe one or two, but he lays the ropes down. Yuma and Laredo, I think. That was it. So yeah. he, he puts the ropes down on the table. So it sort of sets that up, that he's got these ropes that are going to be our, his little calling card as he takes out each person, which I thought was a great touch. Yeah, uh, yep. and the, the fact that the ropes have blood on them mm-hmm. is another thing that I think might have might have gotten people's minds to picture something that they hadn't actually seen. Good point. So, And um, Mr. Collins does his own stunt during his death scene. Oh, yeah, that's true. Which is not, you know, it's not like, um, you know, falling off a building, but it's actually probably smarted a little. He takes a hit, oh, falls to the ground, yeah. and then rolls down a hill into a ditch, which for a man who's probably in his 50s and not exactly probably packing a rock hard stomach that might have might have hurt a little it was a, i don't know i think in 68 he was he wasn't that i mean i can't i don't know how old he was when he was running around in a loin cloth and furs and you're the hunter from the future well that's but. true he always had that comb over that made him look a lot older than he was this is so. true <laughs> at any rate he did his own stunt which i thought was uh, was nice so so mr pagosi was born in 27 so that would have put him at four, the, he was forty-one when he ma- when he made this film, forty or forty-one, depending on exactly when the movie was shot. So, uh, yeah, 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 throwing himself around like that. So that means that by the time you get to your is when he's in his sixties mm-hmm. <laughs> or approaching his sixties, I should say. 
Well, wow. his comb over always looked a lot older. Uh, yes, that's that's an that's an unfortunate hairstyle, but you know you go with what you got. <laughs> he he made it work. He brought the sexy in with the comb over. <laughs> the sex. Yes, the comb over, the sexiest of hairstyles. <laughs> okay, so our eventual hero is off to uh, this this town, uh, your standard western town. To find Yuma, who turns out to be a card sharp or a kind of a professional gambler, played by another character actor that we've that I've seen in a number of films over the years, Lucio DeSantis, who uh, only he passed away in two thousand six. He lived to a pretty good pretty good age, but he's one of those actors that uh, he only had thirty credits, but almost all of them were spaghetti westerns. Well, he looked like he was born to be in spaghetti westerns. Now, the, the weird thing is that he didn't always have a credited role in movies, but he was in so many of them, and his face is his face is pretty recognizable because I think he pretty much always had that beard that he wears in this film. Mm-hmm. So he's another one of those guys who started out working in uh, the sword and sandal stuff and then transitioned to spaghetti westerns, like every actor in Italy at the time, of course. But he was uh, he was in he was in Django. He was the guy who was actually doing the whipping at uh, at the beginning of the film. And uh, he was in The Hills Run Red, Django Prepare a Coffin, which is, of course, another f- fake Django film. Fake Django film? It's mean, true. No, they didn't do 72 actual sequels? <laughs> no, they did not. Oh, man, that's another illusion shattered tonight. And uh, he turns up in uh, And God Said to Cain as well, working again for Margarita just two years later. Hmm. So, yes, indeed. Uh, but he's, he's great because... He pointedly goes out of his way to not carry a gun. So, and you know, the, you know, the fact that he's walking around in public means that if you go gun, if if our hero goes and guns him down, or our anti-hero, I guess would probably be the best way to put that, uh, he's unarmed. So this is where we get the. Uh, there's some pretty good stuff here. This is where we get the the red-haired woman introduced, and we get her plot line going, which is that she's going. Uh, she's she's she gets on the stage to leave this town to go to another town to uh, meet the man that she's uh, she's planning to marry, and it and it they they don't spell it out right because she's clearly a uh, she's a musician, but they, so they don't spell it as clearly as I think they're kind of intending it in a way. That she's essentially a prostitute who's been now purchased by a husband, mm-hmm. and therefore is being you know saved from this hideous life. Because that, that's when you can make out definitely her name. Because the other women working in that little saloon there, saying goodbye to her as she gets on the the uh, stage, the stage, the stage, yes, the stagecoach, uh, is when you hear her being referred to as Jane most clearly. And it's like okay, good. Now we okay. Now we know, now we know who she is. But at the same time, it's one of those things where you know, you've seen it in a lot of different westerns where it's the the prostitute who who fi- finds a man who actually falls in love with her and, and gets married and she takes that and, and and runs off into the sunset. And actually that stage brought up something that I wanted to mention and this is as good a point as any that this film watching it the first time you don't notice it as much but watching it the second time this movie is really tight and the attention to detail is, is great. Um, yep. One thing that I noticed is as our hero walks into the saloon to meet Yuma for the first time. Just over his shoulder, you see that stagecoach pulling up. Yeah. And then a few minutes later, they say, hey, the stage is about to leave. And it's that sort of setup that you know, they didn't have to do that. No. And that, but doing that, it's just a nice it's a nice little little touch that, that really keeps that world alive. Exactly. Yeah, and it creates a... Yeah, you're right. It creates a, a kind of lived-in world where, you know, 
you're sitting there watching this, you know, big wide vista image because it's shot very wide and it gives you all this information and as long as you're taking it all in, each piece each piece should lead to the next piece, mm-hmm. which is which is just good visual storytelling and that's something that I think that by 68 Margarita was getting better and better at it. And like he said, he, like I said, he had a little bit of money to play around with on this. Plus, in making a Western, you've got a little bit more time. You're not having to deal with a lot of special effects. You're not having to deal with a lot. You know, the only real special effects you're having to contend with are, you know, stuntmen. Those, yeah. are, the, those are the places where you're going to have to spend a lot of extra time. In fact, I noticed um, through watching this that I don't think there was a single miniature shot in the film. I don't think there are any at all. So I think and, this would be one that he could he could film and get completed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, him. Oh, so we have our hero right in confront uh, Yuma. We see that he is uh, he's a gambler. Apparently, appears to be a pretty good one. And um, then they have this uh, fist fight there in the saloon. I, I, I like the fact that they're, they're they decide to wait until the redhead and, and the stagecoach leave before they. They have their little fight, and the first thing Yuma does is sucker punch mm-hmm. <laughs> Rocco. <laughs> so we have uh, this fight there, and uh, Rocco makes it very plain that he's not carrying a gun. So if he pulls out his weapon and blows him away, then you know that's murder. So they start fist fighting each other, and this is where we get the rather famous penis cam, uh, which famous to me. <laughs> which I do love. It's a great shot. When I watched it the first time, this was my first viewing of the film, and it was like. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but yeah, there's no other place that camera could have been mounted except right there on the old boom. <laughs> so we get the uh, the spurs to the throat, which uh, kills Yuma. He lays on the lays on the ground and bleeds out. Now this is where you get a little bit of blood too, mm-hmm. but it's not. You know, you have wounds on the guy's neck. But in all honesty, if this were if you if you if this were going to be a really bloody movie. There'd be blood all over the place. Yeah, there have been spurts and everything, and, yeah. and it really was still pretty light. Pretty tame for what is going on here, which is this dude's neck just got cut on you know, left and right sides of his chin. This this dude's dead, and he's dead from bleeding mm-hmm. out. He's not dead because he's really shocked that this guy mounted a camera on his dick. <laughs> he's, he's dead from bleeding, okay? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Well, one other thing during this scene, if we weren't quite clear enough that Richard Harris' son is our sort of a substitute faux Clint Eastwood, yeah, the town newspaperman said, what did you say your name was? I didn't. I I'm like, huh. <laughs> I, love, I, I love the old newspaper geezer who's like, <laughs> I actually thought that he was going to be... Our info dump character, yeah, but he's not—he's not actually. He's just—he's just there for a little bit of color and to kind of uh, give give a little bit of information that we already know to another character that shows up here in the saloon that might be our mysterious fifth killer. Could be, could be, because he's dressed in black, mm-hmm. or he might be somebody else. The movie will wait its time. We to just tell. don't know. But yeah, I thought he was really going to be the information dump, and it turns out Richard Harrison is going to be our information dump in a flashback, <laughs> yeah. where we get this meticulously. <laughs> we, we'll get to that in a minute because next he goes to. Now here's the thing, I swear I keep I keep thinking that the town he goes to next is named Laredo, 
And there's also the bandit Laredo who's terrorizing the place. I don't think that the I don't think that the English dub quite cleaned itself in such a way as to give us a, a name for the town he goes to, but I can't I, I can't pinpoint it. I would need to go back through the film another time. Yeah, there may be a sign in there somewhere. Maybe. I know they called it the the stage that was going there was the tuxedo stage, but yeah, surely but was, the town wasn't named tuxedo unless because uh-huh. it didn't go all the way to Tennessee. <laughs> So it, I don't think uh, that was it. Was there a walrus painted on the side? <laughs> anyway. So, yes, another ancient reference from John Hudson and Rodney Barnett. Thank well, you. I'm sure Thank that you. all the preteens listening to this will be very confused by that. Yes, I'm, I'm positive that the that the, that the, that the penetration of Tennessee Tuxedo into the great zeitgeist of 2018 <laughs> is at a really low level. This ain't exactly a prosperous town, is it? No, it ain't, stranger. Name's Fitz. We all know it's a pretty ugly place, New Laredo. Only good thing that pays here is our funeral wagon. Yeah, and the only place we do any business is in this town cemetery. The decent folk are running out. It's all on the count of Laredo. Laredo? The one and only Laredo, the worst kind of scum you could ever run into. Oh, let me say what I think for once. Go on living like this ain't worth a damn. There's no order here because there ain't no sheriff. No one's man enough to face Laredo. We ain't had no law here. Give me a file. I'm in a hurry. When is the tuxedo stage due in? In a couple of hours. If you were smart, you'd be on it. I would if I could. As soon as our inventory is all paid for, me and Al are moving out. I'm telling you for sure. How much for both? Not a penny. On a house for you, sir. Okay, so as you can tell, I can't figure out if the name of the town is Laredo or if just the bandit's name is Laredo. But nevertheless, we're we're looking for Laredo the bandit. Right, and it could be. And I'm not sure, but you know, a lot of these films they'll call themselves by where they're from. Right. Like Yuma is probably from, from Yuma. Yuma. So maybe Laredo is just he named himself after the town that he's in and he hasn't moved on yet. <laughs> he's still hanging around. Just he never graduated he never he never got out of middle school, so he's just gonna <laughs> hang out. He hasn't gone to hang out with his friends Montana and <laughs> Colorado, Colorado, and all of those guys. So. Wyoming and territory and Butte Mountain and <laughs> dirt. He hasn't gone out there. He hasn't seen, seen dirt in years. Dirt is whatever happened to that guy? I don't know. I always was afraid he was going to wash away. <laughs> oh God, uh, that was terrible. Uh, no, okay, sorry. Sorry for that, folks. But nevertheless, what we have here, in this scene, we have uh, the information dropped into our laps. That since this town has no sheriff, our hero Rocco pulls out a big old gold star and pins it on his chest. Because apparently, he's a lawman who's who's uh, decided to go into Vengeance Road, so he just stuck that star in his pocket to go kill folk. And that's how you can become a sheriff, is just 
you've got your own star and you're good to go. <laughs> have star will <laughs> travel. <laughs> or, or have star will law and order. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's not how it worked on Sheriff Lobo, so I'm not sure that that's how it should work here. That's probably not. That's probably not legal. What we don't even know what but we don't even know what territory in, well they're probably in the territory of, of Spain to be honest with you that's, <laughs> that's probably shot in Alameda but nevertheless uh, this is uh, so it turns out that he is uh, some kind of I don't know ranger or sheriff or whatever the heck he is so he decides to set up shop there in the uh, dilapidated sheriff jail area the the building this the sheriff's supposed to be in uh, and you know it's a few years behind the time because he walks in there there's cobwebs all over the place and this. This scene, or this set, the the sheriff's office, I can see somebody going, okay, that's very gothic looking because it has cobwebs, and it's kind of shadowily, shadowily lit. That's true. And then there's one other thing I can, that later, maybe, but even then, it's the whole, it's not really a gothic film, just no. because there's a minute or so that's in the shadows with cobwebs. No, 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 but... Uh, I did like the fact that they're that they kind of get across the idea of how long it's you know how long it's been since somebody's actually occupied the sheriff's office by having the uh, the picture of the current president be a president who's obviously dead by this point because all these westerns take place after the Civil War and it's Abraham Lincoln's mm-hmm. a picture who's on the wall and it's like oh well there you go that's definitely not been somebody there who gave a shit about staying up to date for a long time. So he sits. He sits himself down to wait for Laredo, and that's when the stage the stage rolls into town with the hot large breasted redhead. And it turns out that it's Laredo that has I don't know mail ordered her or whatever. However, this arrangement was made, but she's there. If if that if you can do that, I want to get that cereal to save those box tops because <laughs> to get <laughs> to get that redhead. That's right. I don't remember getting able to get big boobed redheads on the back of cereal, but well, it's gone out with the stagecoach, so don't worry. That's true, I guess. Not going to happen anymore. Sadly, uh, so he decides that a way, uh, one way for him to make sure that Laredo comes to him is he just locks the redhead up in his jail cell and waits for Laredo to roll into town looking for his his redhead and have to come to him. Which isn't a bad plan. That actually no. makes a lot of sense. Pretty damn smart. So then we get this nighttime gunfight between Laredo. And his uh, uh, his bandit kindred there, but basically they lay siege to the sheriff's office, but uh, trying not to go crazy because they don't want to just you know lay waste the building because that's where the redhead is. Uh, and this is where we get to a point where I want to point out that there is some stuff in this movie. The movie's I feel the movie's over long. I think that you probably could have trimmed a, a, a good bit out of this. And to be honest, the version that got released over here in the states was trimmed down from this length. Um, this this is a 99-minute-long film, and the version that got released over in the States was actually 81 minutes. So that's a lot to get trimmed out of a movie. That is a lot, and even though the film was a little long, I don't know if there would have been 18 minutes worth that I would have cut out. Yeah, that, that, that seems a bit excessive, but I will say that in this scene, the banter back and forth between Laredo and his bandit buddies... There's a lot of that that's really extraneous, where he's just, you know, they're just talking about, I can't wait to get my hands on this redhead. Oh, or, she is uh, skin she like is, velvet. Oh, yeah, yes. No, it's like, could we, I mean, we're in the middle of a siege here with, with bullets. Could we please just get to that part of the, of the mm-hmm. movie, please? Instead yeah, of, they could have cut that down quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, like I say, I see, I see where they could have easily chopped some stuff out of this movie to make it, to make it, 
go a little faster because uh, it does take a little it does take a little bit more time, especially in the second half, to get where it's going. And uh, then there's uh, then there's the final sequence, which we'll talk about here here in a little while. Uh, I don't think we're gonna. Well, I don't know that we can actually spoil a movie like this because guess what? The good guy wins. Mm-hmm. But it's the details that make these movies enjoyable and make them, you know, entertaining things. That's what the western is. You know, that's what the western is all about. Although you do occasionally get those those spaghetti westerns where uh, they do gut punch you at the end of it. They give you a really nihilistic, you know, downbeat ending. Um, you know, the Great Silence and a few others that I can think of where they just you know, <laughs> they go against the whole happy ending being a good idea thing and punch you straight in the face and send you out into the world wondering, well, what the fuck did I bother with that? (laughs) So, not spoiling too much to know that eventually vengeance is taken and our good guy rides off into the sunset, actually with the redhead, if memory serves. It it definitely, and in fact, um, one of the things, of course, he's got her locked up in the jail while the gunfight's going on really for her own protection at one point she tries to run out and, right. and he says are you crazy get back in here where you're not going to get hit in the crossfire and as soon as the gunfight's over she like sizes him up and says well I think I'm going to go with this guy now <laughs> <laughs> well at that point Laredo's dead so. that's true so I guess and and that really is true love that when the guy who's bought you dies you just immediately run to the next guy <laughs> who gunned him down <laughs> you can think this is going to be a relationship that'll last <laughs> For the last long enough for them to realize that they don't actually like each other, yeah, yeah. and then move on. <laughs> but this is, this is a you know, barring my complaints about uh, the the excessive banter between the bandits, the the gunfight, the siege and gunfight is actually very well played, and, and it is it is exciting and well done, and another good sequence in the film. But to be honest. Before that fight even starts is when we get the humongous... We, I skipped right over the gigantic information dump that we get mm-hmm. with Richard Harris uh, telling Son. us the background and telling us why he why, why he's on the Vengeance Road and giving us the whole background and introducing a character that, up until now, the movie has kind of kept in its hip pocket, which would be the Professor. And there was Mendoza. He was a little more complicated. No one ever really understood Mendoza. Yeah, I was a little local, all right. But he was a genius. I swear he was a genius. <sighs> Mendoza, the professor. He liked being called the professor. Strangest man I ever met he was. Always making his Mexican wine. And with that sulfur rock hanging around his neck. He and Richie got along real good, though. <laughs> it brings luck. I'll let you wear it one day. <laughs> You're afraid like a rabbit. I suppose Richie was a little scared of Mendoza, really. So was Rosita, his woman. <laughs> or his slave was more like it. She wasn't much, but he treated her like dirt. <laughs> hey, how about Richie? Come on, Rosita. You want to make love to Richie? Hmm? 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 Go on, you puta. Richie was too much of a kid to understand Mendoza. We took him on this job because he was quick and agile like a cat. All he had to do was get us inside the old fortress. Mendoza would see to the rest. Vamos, amigo. 
didn't want to miss a step of his master plan. The more the risk, the better he liked it. <laughs> Mendoza never doubted that Richie would make it. And I'll be damned, he was right. Domingo was on lookout. He's all quiet down there. He was the only mistake in Mendoza's plan. He picked him up the last minute, figuring a Mexican had never turn on him. It was a bad mistake. Richie managed to get us into the underground of the fortress. Now he had to open a way for us to come up. Meanwhile, in the underground, we tied a long rope to a water wheel that was in constant motion. From that moment on, you might say there was no turning back. Every second counted. Like a slippery sliver, Richie shimmied his way down, head first through a chimney pipe, and came through a fireplace on the floor just above us. So this is where we get introduced to Mendoza. We're told about the crime that uh, our main character here participated in, which is uh, how things ended up with uh, somebody being drawn and quartered at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, the, the, the character of Mendoza, the professor, uh, who's played by an, ama- an amazing actor who um, I, I was not shocked to learn that he had a drug problem. Let's put it that way. You know, I totally agree. I saw that in the interview with Richard Harris, son, and um, he mentioned <laughs> that he didn't like working with him because he was on drugs. And and I think that that actually helped his performance. His performance is fantastic, but he's just so sort of off-kilter somehow, and you think that this guy probably was high the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, where I know him from is um, his role in Bay of Blood, Mario mm-hmm. Bava's Bay of Blood, a.k.a. Twitch of the Death Nerve. And uh, I think he's he's got he well he was the, he's the brother of the the actor who was in uh, for a few dollars more the the, the villain and for a few dollars more uh, Gian, uh, Gian Maria Volante. Matter of fact, this actor's real last name was Volante, but he went under a stage name of uh, Claudio Camosa. But he he was actually the, his real last name was Vol, uh, Volante. The thing is, I mean, it really was sad. Apparently, he did have an increasing problem with drugs to the point where in 1977, he stabbed and killed a guy in some kind of altercation. And then uh, when he was uh, when he was being uh, oh, when he was in jail, you know, awaiting trial, he hanged himself. Hmm. So pretty sad, pretty sad life all the way around. I mean, you know, nine years after this movie was made, he committed suicide. And uh, it really is sad because it's clear in this film I mean, he's, his character is a really florid character, really kind of slightly over-the-top, very strange character who walks around in a, you know, in a half-cape and uh, seems, to, seems to have a couple of half-capes around, lives in a freaking cave. In a lair. It's not even yeah. a cave. It's a lair. It's, got, it's a cave decorated with, with art and statues. and Yeah. He lives like a Batman villain, and he, he really kind of does. He's a great character, and his performance is is really good. It's a yeah. shame. He he really. It's clear that this guy relished playing, uh, you know, a true villain, and or and, and someone with, you know, kind of deep layers of hurt and weirdness within mm-hmm. him. And uh, he he's very good at it. It's 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 sad that that turns out to be a part of his actual character. That maybe the reason he was so good at doing that was because. The guy was a little off to begin with and add a layer of drug problems to that and things only get worse. 
So uh, the thing is, he's he's quite good in this. He is man. I I, could, I thought it was weird. Okay, so he lives in this old sulfur mine, and wears a, 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 a what he thinks of as his lucky as this lucky talisman around his neck, which is just a, a sulfur rock, which I'm assuming is from this mine. There has to be plenty of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for whatever reason, this is what he has to have. So when he, when he, during that, uh, during that crime that we're, we're hearing recounted, we see him crack a safe, and he like kisses his, his his little talisman before he before he tries to before he works on the safe and gets it open. And so the guy's you know a little off. But here's my thing. I mean, he's so pale. I mean, he's so clearly you know done up to be a pale guy who. Almost never sees the sun. I mean, the guy does live in a cave. It looks like he's some damn freaking, I don't know, ogre or something. Mm-hmm. And he kind of lurches around in a way that makes you think of something that would live in a cave to begin with. And there there are these stains on his skin that are kind of yellowish. Well, I think that was sulfur. Is that just sulfur? That's what I thought. It may be, that It yeah. was sulfur that had just you know wound up being plastered to his skin from... Either the dust or bumping into the walls in the cave, or something. I, I guess so. It was just it was one of those things where when you start getting those close ups in the latter, you know, latter third of the film, mm-hmm. it's just like, wow, is he diseased or is that just you know, you know, all this yellow crap that's on? And that's his. what I thought it was his sulfur. Now his teeth are diseased yeah. for sure. Oh yeah, dude, dude definitely has peri- periodontal <laughs> problems. <laughs> There's no crest in the sulfur mine. <laughs> no, 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 nobody's. Nobody's bringing him a brand new toothbrush every month. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. So we're introduced to the professor, who turns out to be this you know genius guy who comes up with these master plans to rob places. Uh, but in the course of this whole thing, it looks as if the professor is accidentally killed when the whole place that they're robbing kind of come down comes down around their ears. So uh, anybody who's savvy to what's going on is going to realize. Bet you that professor guy pops up again, <laughs> because that's just too good a character to do away with for one crime sequence. But then again, you know, hey, stranger things have happened in spaghetti westerns, so maybe not. That's but- true. Um, now, this though is one of the spots in the movie where I have a, a question for you, and maybe you can help me. Sure. And except for the fact that it sets up the movie, I'm not sure why the crime went the way it did. Like if Richard Harrison hadn't been there, there'd be no reason to stage the betrayal and stage his own death. What if he just brought along another guy to come help with the safe robbery and then they could just walk out? Well, because I, I, well, they did have to have the, the, the little guy, the guy that eventually got pulled apart at the beginning of the movie because he was, you know, he's the thin little guy who could get into the, well, and they could have killed him. Right, but Richard Harrison, I got the well. The feeling I got from from that voiceover was that it was like a package deal. Okay, maybe two, that's it. Okay, that makes sense. Like they, you know, they work together, and that's why you know he's his he's his closest friend, and so if there, if one's on the deal, the other's on the deal. Okay, I mean, I it just I'm it, it, a lot of thought went into faking your own death at that point, and I'm just thinking that's more work than you really needed to do, but. <laughs> I guess I can see where you're coming from. Well, I think, and you're right, it is a lot of work. Faking his death in this weird way during this robbery, uh, it, it smacks of, of mad scientist territory. It, it really feels a whole lot like there's like a, a little bit of, 
you know, this, he, he talks about how this guy's a genius and how he's, he's, you know, he's always coming up with these bizarre ideas and strange ways of doing things and all this, that, and the other. And throughout the course of the movie, we see a couple more of those things besides the fact just being weird as shit. Mm-hmm. But we also do see that he is really clever at coming up with kind of Rube Goldberg-esque ways of doing things or structuring things, especially in that cave. Uh, the point, the point where he's like made up smoke bombs for just such eventualities that he might have to have to worry about later on, but at the same time, I, well, I, well, what what it is, I think that what we have is um, a guy who is being set up as kind of a kind of a Batmanish villain. I agree with you, where it's a little over the top, a little bit of the 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 the, the crazed scientist, and also a little bit of the Bond villain who wants to show off how clever he is to a certain degree. And uh, I, I, I think it's neat. And once again, all those things I'm talking about there, I still don't get him being a gothic character it, other than that, you know, the, the way he dresses. The way he dresses is, is you know, like it's, it's not the 1800s. It's, it, the way he dresses is like it's the early 1800s or late 1700s. Mm-hmm. That ha- the whole, you know, the half cape and the, the kind of dandyish clothing that he wears that's kind of, you know, that's kind of odd and out of place with everything else that's going on. And, uh, uh, although I did think it was inter- interesting talking about you know you live in a you live in a, an abandoned sulfur mine so his clothing is generally yellow <laughs> it's like well I guess you know just save the time of it being stained yellow just go ahead That's and right. buy yellow clothing I suppose saves me you're going to save money on all temperature that way you know, <laughs> down 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 at the scrubbing lake <laughs> he won't have to shout it out as often <laughs> <laughs> bounce sheets were a Dime a dozen, though. Because, you know, he was sending Rosita down there with the old washboard. and Yeah, really. Well, he, I, I love the fact that he goes out of his way to... Okay, so... here. Okay, let's let's talk about this for a second. So he goes out of his way to have a female as part of Mendoza's little crew here. Which is, you know, all well and good. But also, we keep getting the hint that Mendoza might have had a little thing for uh, the victim at the beginning of the film. Might have... Might have uh, might have been gay, might mm-hmm. have had some homosexual leanings. So it's 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 like the question then becomes: he, he so he so mistreats. He talks about him mistreating and kind of abusing Rosita, and it becomes a question of: so is this kind of a subtle way of indicating that this character is gay? That that aspect of it, where he mistreats the woman, um, but owns her, and then you know like tells another one of the bandits to rape her at one point mm-hmm. while he stands there and watches. Um, at the same time, in that flashback sequence, before you know, before they start the crime, he's he's really, you know, playing things up to the younger, you know, the, the younger thin guy who can actually, you know, do the job for them, do, you know, wiggle in through that pipe and everything. And it just seemed like it was there was trying to be an indication of him possibly being gay. But they didn't completely pull the trigger. Nothing is overtly said. Nothing is even overtly done. It just seems like maybe that's the way they were going. Yeah, I can see that. But it, and, and a little and a little bit of that, I'll be honest, is is in the performance from the actor mm-hmm. um, because Mendoza. There, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, expression in his eyes that seems to be hinting toward you know a little bit more attention being paid to this guy to this young guy than. Maybe is necessary, but who knows? I did think it was interesting that we get the full 
Howard Cosell voiceover of the entire crime from <laughs> Richard Harrison. It's like, it's like, how many times do we have to be told Mendoza's a genius? I mean, we got that. All right, we mentions it's like it's like he's repeating things at a certain point to fill time. Mm-hmm. Like we can't have any silence here. When honestly, I think silence would have played really well because I love the score for this film too, done by Carlos Savina. And there are periods of the film where I think the score. You know, there's just the score on the soundtrack and it works wonderfully and I think that's true of a lot of spaghetti yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because that was something I was going to bring up the score in this is great yeah I love the music here uh, I even kind of get a kick out of the, the, the song Vengeance that you know plays under the credits although I think that's the weakest part of the score um, just because you know once again it's a 1960s you know it's a 1950s or 1960s western so we have to have the title song <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. even the spaghetti westerns were were we're taking that particular trope and running with it instead of you know, trying to forge a different path. You never know. They could have had a hit single with this. It might have been a prom theme in the late 60s. <laughs> yeah, the prom. The prom. Honey, it's our song. <laughs> Vengeance. Vengeance. <laughs> so like I say, I mean, I, st- I, I still like the song, but I think it's the weakest part of the score, and I think there's just a lot of good music. But I'm a, I'm a fan of Carlos Savina mm-hmm. anyway. I think, he, I think he did a lot of great music for a lot of very interesting... Italian. Uh, well, you're you you're a trash films in general. I think mm-hmm. he was. I think he was kind of amazing. So yeah, the next person on the hit list for our anti-hero is The Kid, played by uh, an Austrian actor named uh, Werner Pothoff. Pochoff, I think. I may have. I know I'm mispronouncing this poor man's name, but uh, this is a guy. This is an actor who uh, ended up playing uh, a lot of Germans early in his career, and I think 
Uh, you take one look at him, and you kind of get that. You kind of get the German impression from him, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, you can kind of see that. But I think it was interesting that uh, in 1971 he was in. Uh, he had a role in Cat of Nine Tales and Iguana with a Tongue of Fire. So it's like a couple of a couple of giallos with big name directors there uh, in in one year. And then he went on to do just a whole lot of stuff. And the thing is, he turns he turns up not just in um, Euro trash films. He also turns up in American films uh, that were shot in Europe. So uh, clear, you know, clearly he was an actor who could, you know, who was versatile enough that he wasn't pigeonholed into just being someone mm-hmm. who worked in, you know, one type of film for one, you know, with one type of language. So I'm assuming he's multilingual. Well, he's a good-looking kid or guy, and um, also had a nice screen presence about him. Yeah, 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 and he's 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 fantastic in this. But it's like I've I you know I I've seen him in uh, Magnum Cop, which is a pretty damn cool uh, uh, European crime, you know, Italian crime film from the mid '70s. Uh, he was in The Shark Hunter from '79, which I'm not positive, but might be a Jaws ripoff. Uh, no, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> they might, might. But he was also in uh, Devil Hunter, which is uh, one of my all-time favorite what-the-fuck-were-they-thinking movies. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen Devil Hunter? I have not. It's um, it's on that list of films I need to see before I die, but I haven't gotten to it it's yet. A, it's a Jess Franco, uh, isolated island kind of jungle epic. And, uh, man, it's it's got the most egregious use of... Uh, you know, cutting a ping pong ball in half to to give someone freaky looking eyes that you're ever going to see, and plus there's this just <laughs> this this big native guy's wang just swinging around like a maniac. It's, just, it's <laughs> Devil Hunters. Um, Devil Hunters. You know, once seen, never believed, never repeated. Let's put Did it that, that way. Wang bat the ping pong ball. No, no, but that would have been funny. I would have been happy with that if that is if they had gone in that direction. I would honestly, I would rate Devil Hunter a full star higher. <laughs> well, we we know what we need to do when we make Rod Barnett the motion picture. <laughs> we need oh, some ding dong ping pong. <laughs> oh God, ding dong! Oh, and I think I think that's where we have to tap out for the evening. Thing no. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, and good night. No. Oh, oh no. Okay, so the kid. So this is interesting. So, once again, clearly when writing this story, uh, Margarini did not want to put himself in the position of just filming the same kind of setup and the same kind of confrontation between the good guy and the bad guy each time because he knew he was going to have you know five different five different people that this this character was going after. And so this one may be the weirdest one. Uh, this is the weirdest one. The kid has a particular way in which he sets up a duel between himself and Richard Harrison's character that involves a beer and a pistol. <laughs> it's an interesting duel, all right. Before we get to the duel, one thing I thought was a nice little twist on this was, as best I could tell, Richard Harrison didn't even know about this guy. Yeah. Um, the kid, though, knew that he was out there and was gunning down everybody who was involved with this. So he, he thought, well, i got to get him before he figures out I was involved. So I thought that was actually a nice touch, that Richard Harrison is kind of just riding along, and the kid's like, I'm going after him. Which also sort of changed, made it a little less episodic as far yeah. as, I'm going to take out this guy and this guy and this guy. Yeah, we're, sti- we're still following the track, and we're still going through these, fa- these five uh, people that he's, ta- that he's taking down, but there's, there's a good deal of variety in how things are being done. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
the uh, th- this 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 is a really odd contest, and it's clear the kid has done this before because everybody knows what to expect, and even the bartender knows what his part what part he has to play in this little game is, and. Um, I think I think it's I think it's funny. Of course, you know, you know, the kid the kid takes a bullet as you as you expect. We're 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 still not to the end, so the good guy ain't about to get croaked by this little trick. But it is pretty neat the way they come up with for uh, for the good guy to be able to excel at this particular odd game that he's never seen before. And uh, so that that was well done. I I, I enjoyed that uh, uh, quite a bit, and it certainly set you up for. You know the final confrontation where it's like, well, now we get the big reveal. Well, first we get a couple of reveals. We find out that the black-clad man who showed up after uh, the uh, second character guy—he yeah, showed up after Yuma was killed. After Yuma was killed, uh, he's talking to another character and claims to be a Pinkerton agent, and uh, who's after the money that was stolen in that crime that we were that was recounted uh, by our main character. So my thought while watching the film for the first time was, well, is he a Pinkerton man, you know, sent to get this money back, or is that a cover story and he's the fifth guy? But then we find out that, well, Mendoza's still alive, and clearly he's the fifth guy. So that guy is a Pinkerton. Yeah, and he's also, the Pinkerton had a couple chances to to kill our hero. Yeah, and did, did not do it. So. Yeah. As, as a matter of fact, as far as we could tell, helped him. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I think he knows that his chances of getting to the gold are better if he just lets lets this guy take his lets him do it because yeah. he seems to be on the fast track to find it. Yeah, this <laughs> this guy seems really motivated. <laughs> That's let's, right. Let's let him go, man. Do we do we have to describe? Do we have to explain the people the the Pinkertons? Pinkerton Detective Agency uh, was a uh, uh, exactly what it says. This was a uh, a pretty famous uh, uh, detective agency. Uh, that operated in the uh, mid eight, mid to late 1800s. I'm not sure when the Pinkertons went away. I think in the early 20th century, actually, the Pinkertons were still around. Um, they may still be around in some form or another today. I'm not positive, but uh, they were an early detective agency where you could you, you could hire someone to you know you know a, a company, a railroad, even a person could hire someone to go and like you know like. Uh, get get safe passage through you know wilder country or retrieve something that was stolen or uh, retrieve someone who was kidnapped something mm-hmm. like that you could hire uh, the Pinkerton Detective Agency and they would go and do these things for you uh, I'm sure you know cost a pretty penny but then again that's what you would expect but that's what we that's what we're saying when uh, he claims to be a Pinkerton man and then he does turn out to actually be someone who works for the Pinkertons who's been sent to try to get the money back that was stolen in that original crime. So, then we get down to the final confrontation, which is Mendoza, or Mendoza! Ah, uh, yes. Always with the stale Simpsons reference. That's us. <laughs> like the Tennessee Tuxedo reference wasn't stale, I guess. Well, <laughs> I guess the Simpsons is a heck of a lot fresher than Tennessee Tuxedo. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, it's, yeah, no argument. This is true. So... Um, this is another portion of the film. This is a this is the section of the film where, although I love the setting, and this is like I say, this is the section of the film where I think you could almost 
understand why someone might try to describe this movie as God. And this was the the other section that I was referring to yeah. earlier, where it's like, if you're going to go with that, right. this is it. But still, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch. It is a bit of a stretch. But what it is, is uh, that the, this huge cave, which is a real cave, sequ- you know, a real cave, a warrant of, of various, various and sundry connected caves uh, somewhere. I'm, once again, assuming in Spain. But I couldn't find specific information about where this movie was shot, but like so many spaghetti westerns, I'm assuming it was shot in Spain because it just seems that a lot of the uh, the vistas, some of the places where like the stagecoach rides through, I've seen those same those same places in a lot of different spaghetti westerns that I know were shot in Spain. Yeah, it looked like it. And you're right, though. I couldn't. There's not a lot of information out there on this film. No, no I couldn't really. dig up much at all. I was looking. I was looking around. I'm sure. I, 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 unfortunately, uh, Eduardo Margariti, uh, Antonio Margariti's son, used to have a fantastic website devoted to his father that seems to have disappeared in the past couple of years, which is sad because there was information on each one of his father's films. And it was a great resource for for finding out certain things. Plus, uh, you could just you could occasionally write Eduardo and ask a specific question, and you'd get some information back from him, which was pretty cool. Uh, and I may still be able to do that. I need to kind of check into a few things. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's sad to see that, uh, for whatever reason, AntonioMargariti.com no longer exists. Mm. Because uh, I'm the Eduardo at this time, I think, was, was involved in you know helping his father. So he would have definitely had some information about where the hell they shot this thing. But um, if you reach him, can you find out whatever happened to the Invisible Chimp? <clears throat> Yeah, that'll be question number two. <laughs> well, that might be on the FAQ list that you get. Yeah, 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 yeah but maybe that would that would have been, you know, honestly, that's got to be such an obvious question. You're right. It's probably in the top five questions ever asked of, of Eduardo Margariti. Hey, whatever happened to the Invisible Chimp? I'll bet it comes uh, up more than you think. I bet it never comes <laughs> up. Uh, ever, Mr. Hudson. Ever. <laughs> You're no fun anymore. <laughs> I was never any fun in the first place. Let's be honest. Okay, final confrontation in the cave. And I got to agree with the general consensus on this. This sequence, although it looks great, and I understand the structure he's going for, it's too damn long. Yeah, um, it one of my favorite film quotes ever, and it's great advice to many a director, comes from the um, the long version of Dawn of the Dead. Not it's the one that gets referred to as the director's cut, but isn't the director's cut is the one that was one yeah you know, the hour the, the, the two hour the two hour minutes. yeah but there's uh, Romero's doing a director's commentary on it and the sequence where the bikers are roaming through the mall it's too and, long yeah. and and at one point Romero says you know a little less of this would go a long way yeah and I think that's just sage advice yeah it's true it's true although I do. Absolutely love the longer version of Dawn of the Dead because I like seeing because I, I know what it is is he put together a cut to get, to send off to Khan. He was still in the editing right. process and that's why that version is you know what is it fifteen minutes longer or something like mm-hmm. that. And I and I, so I understand that he was still in the editing process. He was still getting it down to where he thought it ought to be. But I still love having all that extra. Oh, stuff. Oh, I do too. Yeah. I love. But he's right that that yeah. sequence goes on too long. But. And and the the ultimate version is the short the shorter version, yeah. but there's great stuff in there. In fact, have you seen the uh, extended hours cut that floats around of Dawn of the Dead? Oh, is this where uh, is this where they took all of the footage that's uh, only in the Dario Argento cut, all mm-hmm. the footage that's in the longer cut, and the stuff? Basically, there's footage that only exists in the three different main right. cuts, and, and they essentially put it all together. Yes. Yeah. 
and they put it together. It's just beautifully seamless. About the only giveaways is you can occasionally spot cuts in the music. And during the opening credits, some people's credits get repeated. Oh, okay. Um, but it really is, it's an interesting watch. It's too long. But as you watch it, like especially like during the TV station sequence, which is just so chaotic at the beginning of the yeah. film, there's so much dialogue that's filled in there that it really, all the puzzle pieces are there all of a sudden. Well, that's interesting. It's interesting to watch. It's not the version that needed to be out there, but it's great to see. It's almost like the... Um, Godfather complete epic yes cut it's which it's, which tells the whole story of the first two films chronologically mm-hmm. yeah. and then puts in a lot of it you know extra footage yeah. and so on it's it's similar to that in the way that there's it's not the the version of the film that needed to be released but it's great to see yeah but it's yeah. definitely worth watching well that's that's the thing is I've watched all three versions but I've yeah you're right I knew that cut exists that somebody sat down and put all you know put it all together but I've not watched they it. they do a fantastic job I mean it's it's Almost per. If you know where the somebody like you or me who's seen the film so many times will be able yeah. to spot it. But if you haven't watched it before, you'd never know where most of the the cuts are. I mean, they really do a nice job. And of course, it helps that there's these great versions of it out now, where you're not going from a 16 millimeter print and a eighth generation VHS. You know, you've got great versions of all these films yeah. to edit together. So. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Well, at any rate, back to the fact that the the ending sequence. Yeah, sorry film, about that. I totally no, 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 took this. No, no, no. <laughs> that's a side road that's worth taking. I'm not bothered by it. But at the same time, this this sequence is too long, and it is enjoyable to a certain degree. But there is a point you reach, and, and, and it's and it's not too far into the sequence when you realize, okay, we all know how this is going to play out to a degree, other than the specific details. Mm-hmm. Let's get there. And the film kind of drags it out a little bit too long. This is another spot where, man, I could see some trimming that would bring the runtime of this film down. Not to 81 minutes, but I could see... This movie would have probably been a really good, comfortable 90 minutes. Yeah, that's about right. About eight or nine minutes could have gone and been just fine. And uh, a lot of this stuff here at the end, I, 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 I get it. Marguerite was probably loving... You know all the the really inter- interesting camera uh, angles and setups he was getting in this cave, and some of the some of the framing shot, some of the way he's framing certain things, and some of the and the way in which he's he's delineating how things are being done, and the smoke bombs, and the and and the chase, and the the, the, the very you know the the various points at which they're trying to get a shot off at each other, and it's interesting to watch, but it just is too long, and. Um, yeah, yeah. This is this is this is the main spot where I can see, and this is one of the general criticisms. And I agree, it's it's too long in this section. This section needed to be shortened down a bit. Um, but overall, I still think this is a pretty damn good little spaghetti western. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think um, I think I'm probably kinder to it these days than I was when I initially saw this more than a decade ago. Just because in the ensuing ten or eleven years, I have now seen so many, so many lesser spaghetti westerns, ones where you can't even tell. I mean, I, there's spaghetti westerns out there that I've sat through that I swear to you, if there was a script, nobody told anybody <laughs> on set. And this thing has a story. This thing has mm-hmm. a, a definite story, a definite script. The through line is strong. It's there. Everybody's on. Clearly, everybody involved is on the same page. And this is a tight, tightly done little film, just too long. That, I, I totally agree, and in fact, that's something I told uh, Laura as I watched it the second time. I said, 
this was a really good little movie. I mean, everything makes perfect sense. Yeah. Everything, when you watch it the second time, you see setups for things that are coming later that right. don't just jump out at you the first time. It's like, hey, we're setting something up here. It's just, it's there. And then the second time, it's like, ah, well, I'll be darned. They laid the groundwork for that right there. So, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a nice little movie. Like I say, I can't wait until we compare this to something like And God Said to Cain, mm-hmm. which was just a couple of years later, which, um, of course, has the benefit of a central performance from Klaus Kinski. But also, I think it's as if he took some of the ideas he wanted to play with uh, in this film and kind of further refined them to a certain degree for that that second film. Uh, and I think that uh, Margariti made uh, several good spaghetti westerns. This being one of them. Not this is not a great one. I think he did a couple of he did some better spaghetti westerns right after this. Uh, but this is still a solid movie. And I will say one of the things that's kind of a standard. Uh, way of looking at Antonio Margheriti is that he was kind of, uh, you know, the the number three uh, of Italian cinema at the time. He was always behind Baba. And there was a rivalry between the two of them. And the thing is, that this, this is something that I think you have, to, you have to admit to being true, which is that Baba tried his hand at Westerns as well, and his Westerns pretty much stink. Um, Margheriti could make a Western, though. Margheriti had a much better facility for crafting a spaghetti western that felt uh, organic. It felt like something that he was much more comfortable with Where I don't, whereas I don't think Baba was really the guy to be doing it, even though he got shoved into that mm-hmm. uh, more than once to make a spaghetti western. And while I find Baba's his two, I, I think his westerns are worth seeing if you're a completist. They're also the kind of films that unless, you know, unless you're just a you know, a fanatic, you're probably not ever going to venture back and rewatch them very often, if at all. They're more of a curiosity than anything else, but with something like Vengeance and God Said to Cain and Take a Hard Ride and Blood Money, Margariti, his westerns are, you know, Stranger in the Gunfight. These are mo- these are movies that you can enjoy watching. These are, these are things that, I, at least a couple of those, were kind of standards on uh, commercial television in the 70s and 80s because they're solid little westerns. They, mm-hmm. they get the job done. Whereas uh, Baba's, if memory serves, I think even one of them didn't even have an English dub track. I mean, they didn't even... It didn't even get brought to America, so there was no, there was no indication from anybody involved in that movie that it was ever going to get over here because it just didn't feel like it was worth transporting across the ocean. I guess I don't know. So I would not say this is true in pretty much any other field, but in the land of uh, directing westerns, Margariti beats out Baba here, and not just here, but in some of the other mm-hmm. films as well. Of course. That's a really small area to be complaining about when you're talking about somebody as incredible as Mario Bava, but... That's true. And and he also, in the Invisible Chimp department... Oh, Jesus Christ. Won nothing. <laughs> uh, y- yes, you're right. For whatever reason, uh, Mario Bava never crafted a film that involved an invisible chimp. And indeed, uh, one could even count that against Dario Argento because the one time he has a chimp, you can see that fucker all day long. Yeah, but that chimp has a razor. <laughs> it's a razor wielding. It's so a razor wielding chimp. He's not invisible, but he's awfully cool. Yes, 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 he is. Now, never, when he's off camera, never going to get away from the goddamn invisible. When chimp. that chimp is off camera, yeah, 
Yeah, I'm sure Could he's a friend, I'm sure he's a friendly guy and loves lattes. I don't I'll know. I'll bet though he's actually on camera but <laughs> invisible. Yes. I'm sure maybe in maybe he's even in this film. Who the fuck knows? Yeah, there was that one horse that didn't have a rider. Um, that yeah, hey, the maybe corner. that was the chimp there. I bet Richard Harrison said, okay, Bonzo, hop on. <laughs> <laughs> Barstow for Bonzo. God damn it. Get him on the bar stool. Get him some bourbon. How many more B words can I fling into this fucking thing? Beats me. <laughs> oh, God. All right, enough. Holy jeez. I end up giving Vengeance a 7 out of 10. I don't know where you fell. 7 out of 10, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I'm right there with you. Solid. He's got some better He's got some, uh, some better films. He's got some worse films, but this one's a pretty solid little spaghetti western. And one that I think that you would do well if you are the least bit interested to check out. I think this is a film worth seeing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I would be able to recommend this one without almost any qualifiers. I mean, the only qualifier yeah. would be... If you like spaghetti westerns, yeah. if you don't, this probably isn't the one that's going to convert you. But no. but if you like them, this is a good one. All right. Uh, hold on, people. We'll uh, take a quick break here, come back, and we've got uh, a brief piece of email to talk about. And then we'll tell you which Antonio Margariti film we'll be covering next time. are moving tonight, restless, hungry. All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s. With teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing. Just visit bmoviecookbook.com. Okay, and we're back. We're going to talk a little bit about a piece of email we got here from a fellow in Sweden. His name is, uh, I want to pronounce it Michael, but I know I'm probably mispronouncing it. It may be Mikael, uh, M-I-K-A-E-L. Sorry if I'm mangling your name. You're a nice man. Thank you for writing us. But he says, Hi, if you're a margarita completist and own a region-free Blu-ray player, there is a German six-disc box called... The Ultimate Mercenary Collection, and he included a link to it on the the German Amazon site. He says uh, it's got 1980s European mercenary films, and it's fairly inexpensive. All six films have German-English dual audio, and four of them were directed by Margariti. The four are Tornado from 83, Codename Wild Geese from 84, Commando Leopard from 85, and The Commander from 1988. Thank you. Mikhail, Michael, uh, I hope I'm, I, 
Thank you, nice person from Sweden, for letting us know about this. And here's the strange thing is I knew uh, they, they had released, I wrote him back and said, I wish they'd known they were going to package them all together like that because I bought a couple of those as individual German Blu-rays a while back because I was able to get like a pretty decent price on them. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, um, yeah, like I said, if I'd known they were going to put them together in a, in a nice cheap set, I would have held off. But those are good Blu-rays. At least the ones I have are really good. And, uh, yeah, they do have, you know, the English language tracks and their, their, uh, their Blu-rays there. They look, the, the one, like I say, the ones I have look really good. And, uh, uh, you do need, yeah, you do need a region free player. Although there are, there have been a few, not many, there have been a few European discs that I bought that actually turned out to be all region discs, but weren't advertised that way. Mm-hmm. So Arrow is pretty good about that. sneaking that in yeah. sometimes. Well, not, yeah, but not just Arrow. Also, some things that I'm like I've bought a few German and French uh, Blu-rays, and just to test them, I'll throw them in a non-region-free mm-hmm. player just to ch- check them. And damn, if some of them don't just play, well, I'll be. So, but well, yeah, I mean, like especially uh, there's a there's a wonderful uh, couple of box sets of German Krimis from uh, Germany that uh, will play in a regular, just American Blu-ray player that's not set to be region-free at all. And that is wonderful because I love the Krimis. I love being able to see those things in nice, crisp, high definition. It's really sweet. Nice. Well, yeah, thanks. Um, Michael? Michael. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll go with Michael. We'll go with that. Um, and I hope that that's not a bad word in Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> He seems like a nice guy. He seems like a very nice guy. I really appreciate because I had no idea that that was out there. I'm gonna have to get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll drop kick you the link so you yes, can, please. Uh, you can check it out yourself. But the uh, uh, the Margarita stuff. The, this is gonna be interesting. We've not gone into we've not gone heavily into the '80s stuff that he produced because once again, following the usual trends, Margarita was making uh, you know kind of Rambo ripoffs to a certain degree mm-hmm. in the uh, '80s. And uh, he, uh, he was making, he made a couple of uh, what, what I would call uh, apocalypse now exploitation kind of stuff, you know, like things like The Last Hunter. And that kind of bled perfectly into doing things that were very Rambo esque uh, after, uh, after, you know, the giant hit of First Blood Part Two. And so you get things like Commando Leopard and, and uh, The Commander and things like that, which are, you know, were made in the late 80s that. Are essentially just you know mercenary and the jungle films, and there were a lot of those being produced at the time. Margarita was not the only one making those suckers. So in the eighties, you get some you know you get the really interesting Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoffs, you get the uh, Apocalypse Now uh, ripoffs, you get the uh, the Rambo ripoffs, and that's essentially what was that's where the that's where the money was flowing in the eighties uh, because the 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 Italian film industry had shrunken so so much. That there weren't a whole lot of people out there that were were making a lot of movies because the money was getting tighter and tighter and tighter for various reasons. Uh, but Margariti is one of those guys who worked throughout the '80s because clearly they could, he could be trusted to get the film in the can, you know, mm-hmm. to get the, to get the thing finished. And I would like to point out once again that uh, if you are interested in reading more about Antonio Margariti, there is the excellent uh, Antonio Margariti blog that's done by. Uh, my uh, occasional co- uh, podcast, my, my occasional podcasting partner, uh, Adrian Smith, over in England. He does. He's just kind of randomly doing long form reviews of various Antonio Margheriti films, much like us. He's not going in any kind of chronological order because that would drive you insane. So he's he's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would. I mean, you'd go crazy. 
I mean, you know, you, uh, no, you have to jump, you have to jump around, and, and in a career that you know spans so many different genres, that makes it a lot more fun to do anyway, because mm. you can you can move from you know a giallo to a science fiction film to a western to a thriller to a you know a, you know action you know action movie of some some type or another, uh, and feel like you're not going to be bogged down and feel you know feel like you're you're starting to kind of you know get that tunnel vision of well I've watched four westerns in a row i i'm ready to kill myself can't do this anymore (laughs) but please check out the antonio margariti blog uh also known as blogariti which i think is kind of a funny fucking it's all right yeah so check that out he does uh every every month or two he'll do a, a big long form post about one particular film and his most recent post is actually on the film that we are going to cover the next time mr hudson and i sit down to talk about a margariti film we've decided to do and God said to Cain, 1970s. And God said to Cain. Once again, we've we've mentioned it a few times in this uh, this podcast because there are some uh, tonal and well, if you want to talk gothic, this is the or gothic western. This is definitely where that shines through pretty heavily. I think that there are a couple of little things that are you know that happen in Vengeance that might lead you in that direction, but. When you see "And God Said to Cain," I think you're going to get a you're going to get a full dose. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to this one because doing the research for this, that film came up a lot. Yeah. Of course, we brought it up probably a dozen times, and it, I think if um, people can bear with it, if, it, if it's not too self indulgent to do two westerns in a row, I think this will be a nice little compare and contrast. I think it'll be fun because this is uh, this is a movie that I uh, when I first saw it several you know several years ago I was just really 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 impressed by it and was a little shocked that it wasn't better known than it is. Um, but then again, I don't know you know because Klaus Kinski is the lead, you get you get two things there, which is that you get a really amazing performance because Kinski's really bringing his all to this game. Kinski brings the A game to this sucker. I mean, he really is good in it. But then at the same time, Kinski's always kind of internationally been internationally been more of a bit player, a supporting actor. And so putting him in a lead role isn't necessarily your ticket to <laughs> your your ticket to big boffo box office. Um, you know, outside of Werner Herzog, I don't know of a lot of directors who like seek out mm-hmm. Klaus Kinski to put him in the lead in a particular film. And with with Herzog, at least you're talking about you know someone who's making what could ostensibly be called just art house films, to at least from the American point of view. So having somebody like Kinski in a role like that isn't is isn't something that's going to stand out as much as it's going to be in like a spaghetti western where by 1970 audiences are looking for the you know the next Clint Eastwood clone or the Franco Nero clone at the very least so doesn't uh, he and if my, if memory serves his his costuming throughout and God said to Cain is a little different from what you might expect from uh, somebody who was sitting down to see. Well, I really enjoyed uh, that uh, good, bad, and ugly thing. Uh, I'm gonna see what this here film looks like. <laughs> I think they got. I think they got maybe something they weren't looking for. So next time we will talk about and God said to Cain. And after that, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to switch it up and do something do sure. something a good deal different. We may have to uh, we may have to uh, I don't know maybe we dive back in maybe we do something like Snow Devils or maybe we go up to uh, um, maybe we do one of the eighties films maybe we do something like uh, Aliens from the Aliens from the Deep from nineteen eighty nine which I can't call good Aliens but I can't, from the Deep we, yes. 
I can't call it good, but I can call it a movie. So Well, I call that a great title. I think any film entitled Aliens from the Deep is going to be great. <laughs> um, I'm going to enjoy proving you wrong. So. <laughs> so next time... I think anybody who's sat through enough of these already will know that I'm... That won't be the case. <laughs> but thank you once again for sitting down to talk about another margarita. Film. I love doing it. Love it. We always say it that I wish we, we could do more of these because yeah. um, I, I wish we could do more of these. It's always a blast. And and uh, seriously, as much as I kid around, the fact that a guy from Sweden thought enough about our show to write in, oh, yeah. that just blows my mind. It, it always amazes me when I see... Well, not just when we get emails, but when I see where people are paying attention to the show all mm-hmm. over the world, it really surprises me. And I just want to thank everybody who's listening to the show, because without you, there would be no show. Uh, well, there would be a show, but it would just be, you know, me and Hudson sitting around bullshitting about Antonio Margariti films for no good reason. We're glad to have an audience out yes, there. Yes, we are. We really us. appreciate everybody who listens. So, uh, once again... Uh, We'll see you next time for And God Said to Cain. My name is Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. We'll see you soon. All right. See you, folks. Strange.